0: Hello beautiful souls and welcome to the Learned to Love podcast. We have a very, very special episode for you this week because our guest for this week's podcast is truly such an honor to have on. We have with us Thomas Moore. I've followed and been deeply inspired by Thomas Moore's work for many years now and was so absolutely delighted when his publicity team reached out to me to come on to the show. It was such an honor to have them reach out to me. Now that the podcast has become established and grown considerably, more and more people are reaching out to me to be a guest on the show. And to be honest, at first I thought it was too good to be true, but sure enough, we scheduled the interview and made it happen. And now I'm so excited to share it with you those of you wondering who Thomas More is, it might be a little confusing because if you google Thomas More, you will find two people. One is an Irish writer and poet born in 1779. That is not Thomas More. This Thomas More is my guest, the psychotherapist and former monk, author of over two dozen books all around the topics of psychology, spirituality, mythology, and more. If you ever wanted to learn more about the nature of the soul, Mr. Moore's body of work is a great place to start, including his books, Dark Night of the Soul, The Soul of Sex, The Soul of Christmas, Soulmates, and his most popular work, Care of the Soul, which was a huge hit in the 90s and has sold millions of copies around the world. His works for me are such an inspiring integration of science and spirituality. He appreciates the mystery of the transcendent and the evidence of the empirical. Thomas More's work brings together spirituality, mythology, depth psychology, and the arts, emphasizing the importance of images and imagination. Early on in his life, he was a Catholic monk who hung up his robes to become a university professor and psychotherapist, influenced mainly by the work of Carl Jung, and who has worked alongside the other famous psychologist, James Hillman. He came onto the show to talk about his most recent work, The Eloquence of Silence. That's our topic for today's show and we'll have no intro music. I really wanted to absolutely maximize the time that I had with Thomas in our interview. So the interview will go right into our conversation and I'll summarize all the points at the very end after I say goodbye. So thank you so much for listening to and supporting the show. Your support helps me book amazing guests like Thomas Moore. So without further ado, let's begin. How are you today, Thomas? Thank you so much for coming on. My
1: pleasure. I'm very happy with the idea of talking to you about things that are interesting to me and to you.
0: Yes, I'm really so excited to have you on. I'm a huge fan of your work, and I really appreciate you spending this hour with me. I was first exposed to your writing with your book, A Religion of One's Own. And I know you have many works. You might not even remember this particular one, but there's a quote in there that I've added to one of my yoga presentations because I do a lot of yoga teacher trainings. And in it, you write, to be spiritual, you have to be on guard against flimsy ideas and practices. The whole area of religion and spirituality invites flim <laughs> which I love that word, <laughs> <laughs> and is filled with con men and con women. And you also write that the one ingredient missing in much of modern spirituality is intelligence. And I would love to hear more from you about the dangers of spirituality without skepticism or intellectual rigor.
1: Uh, First, I'd like to tell you where I get that. When I was a young man, I, I lived in a Catholic monastery. This was like many, many years ago, so it was a different world, but it was not too unusual for people to do that. And it was a very spiritual experience, believe me. But what I learned was that study and reading were a form of prayer, and that to study was one of the most important things you could do as a monk. And I would translate that into the spiritual life. One of the most important things you can do is study, because what you're doing then is you are really searching for a good solid basis for your life practice, and, your, and you know how you live your life. And uh, without it, you're susceptible to a lot of emotion, and susceptible to people who can be very persuasive, but actually don't deliver the goods. And uh, so, I think that, uh, that for, that's one reason why it's really important to to study. And if you look over contemporary spiritual practices and writings. I don't think you get much of that. You you're told how to live and you're told which practice would be good for you. And you you're given a few slogans like be here now or live in the now or something like that, which I think is highly dubious anyway. But um you you uh, you don't get uh you don't get encouragement to study and to think things through.
0: I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the slogans, but I just want to repeat what <laughs> <laughs> what I love you said that study and reading are a form of prayer. And that is really powerful. And what are some of the greater issues that you've seen when people don't apply this to their spiritual practice?
1: Well, for one thing, I won't take them in any order. Uh, One thing that happens is that instead of being really ethical and probing and concerned about the important ethical issues of your time, like, for example, taking care of the planet, uh, racism, sexism, ageism, all those things, peace in the world, taking care of children, uh, helping marriages get along. I mean, all these are really deep and important ethical issues. And instead of that, we get moralism when you don't think things through. You get moralism, which is just like having, again, like slogans about how you what you should do, or you get focused on one issue that probably reaches deep into your own personal psychology. And so you, if you don't think it through, what you're doing is acting out some anxieties that you've had all your life. And I don't mean to psychologize it too much, but I think we do have to think psychologically as well. So I think this happens, that people maybe grow up feeling insecure because their their family didn't really give them uh, support and encouragement to be themselves and they get older and that child that has been neglected lives on it lives on in a person and i think that child comes out in a kind of uh, attachment to certain ethical issues or you know that are in the world but there's no thought behind it so it becomes highly emotional and maybe tied to deep anxieties and uh, part of our experience of growing up into adults is to be able to be free, to think things through, to make good choices, instead of being compelled by these uh, these early experiences that, uh, that that are like static, that get in the way of really becoming an adult.
0: Absolutely, especially with those really hot-button issues of today, people do get really emotionally charged. And because of that, there isn't a chance for authentic dialogue and a more logical reasoning about how we should go about these things.
1: That's an excellent point, that we're we're not able to have dialogue, we're not able to have conversations. You try to have a conversation with someone who is all fired up about their own religious belief or some moral issue, and you can't even talk. Uh, it just, it's impossible to to get a word in. You can't have a conversation to explore, go deeper into the issues so you might learn more about what's going on and develop a more mature way of uh, thinking ethically. That's a big part of the spiritual life. And you know, it, it's, to me, it's quite discouraging because my understanding of spirituality is a lot more thoughtful than that.
0: It's so interesting because I was literally preparing this interview and I look over to my bookshelf, and there was a book I have on Thomas Merton. And it was the first time I saw it at the very top. It said, Forward by Thomas More. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Thomas Merton is a a Christian mystic who also really encouraged that interreligious dialogue, that learning from other traditions. And both in his work and your work, I've also read a lot about this practice of Lectio Divina, which I feel like many people are, are unfamiliar with. So I would just love to hear about what your view on Lectio Divina is, what kind of practices you continue to implement in your life. And also when you mentioned how continuing to read and study is an important part of the spiritual path I am curious about where your own path is right now at this point in your life do you feel like you're you've read all there is to read
1: <laughs> hardly hardly well about lexio Divina first it's a particular kind of reading it's not reading for information that's what a lot of people read for either people today probably read either for information or for entertainment like they might read a a popular novel for entertainment, and they may read uh, a, a lot of books uh, getting information of one kind or another. Lexio Divina is neither of those. Lexio Divina means that you Lexio by the way means reading and Divina means divine of course so it's a it's a kind of reading that is aimed at ultimate questions, ultimate issues. these are the spiritual matters, and so you know these things are very mysterious. I, I keep saying this: these are mysteries—mysteries mysteries of love, mysteries of infinity, of uh, divinity, of how to live, the, uh, how to love. These are all mysterious things, and you—you you can't just get information about them, or you don't just want to go to someone who thinks they have figured it out and are going to tell you how they would do, how they would do it. That's not enough, and that—that that, uh, leads to a kind of. Uh, following of someone that's not, not very mature, because you, you, you lose yourself in that other person's thought. So Alexio Divina is reading in such a way that you explore the mysteries, and you explore them with someone who can do it intelligently, who won't just give you easy answers, and who won't just try to have you think the way they think. And I think Merton is a good example. Thomas Merton, the reason I wanted to write that uh, introduction or Whatever it was, a preface to his book, uh, and I wrote a long one, a long introduction to his book. Uh, I remember it a lot about birds. And um, Merton was someone who did not accept any easy answers. Before he became a monk, he was a sort of existentialist philosopher, and he was really interested in ideas. and And uh, it was an unexpected and shocking that he became this strict monk. While he was a monk, he was he was not a a great monk. You know, I mean, the abbot of his monastery had great trouble with him, and they were always (laughs) fighting and arguing, and uh, he always got in trouble. And I think that's good, because he couldn't fit into this uh, too easy, into a community that might think alike or do things alike. And he stood out. And when, in fact... He lived in a very strict monastery where there was silence all day, as far as I know. They used to write on notes, not speak. And they ate very frugally, and uh, they had nothing. And uh, And he asked that he be given a hermitage, that he be given a, a little hut where he could live apart even from that. He wanted more solitude than that. So he's a very thoughtful, spiritual person and had great ideas, had a real intellect. And... Um, that to me, he would be a good model, and you know you can't stuff him into Catholicism either it doesn't fit it's, it's too too tight for him. He had to be in a bigger world and you know he died when he was in uh Thailand, I think it was and i've I've listened to the the lecture he gave just before he died, minutes before he died, and uh, he had a wide open mind, and his message and the last the last talk he gave was you've got to do this on your own. Don't just join something. You have to do this work on your own. And I think that's a great message for people today. Don't just link up with some leader or some community or group. They can be supportive, but don't give too much of your mind and soul to them.
0: I love that. And I love the emphasis that you said on we're not reading for information, but appreciating the mystery. And I would love to hear more from you around how we do cultivate that knowledge or spiritual wisdom because i do feel like we do live in a world where we're just drowning in information you've seen the rise of the internet and we're always carrying around a device that is always pummeling us with all sorts of distractions that can easily distract us from the spiritual path and how do we cut through that complexity and almost cultural conditioning telling us what we're supposed to believe what matters and how do we you know make our way through that jungle to true authentic spiritual wisdom
1: i think we have to where it starts is in each of us being individuals and even being eccentric standing out from the crowd and and notice when you're joining something or you're with a group of people who think alike that you know ask yourself is this a dangerous situation should i be here i've got to protect my individuality at all costs and my own take on things. I have to educate myself constantly. But at the same time, I don't need to buy into a a method or a way of doing things that someone else has created. In this regard, the traditions, I think, are a little safer. Not much. They have their own problems. But they're safer in the sense that the traditions uh, come from community thought, a community of thought over time, and not just from an individual's thinking. Today, we tend to follow individuals rather than traditions. The traditions are a fault to some extent, because they created these uh, very, very uh, limited and uh, literal institutions. And today, people don't want those institutions. And I think that's a good thing. But the traditions are something different. The, let's say the tradition of uh, Zen Buddhism, which I have learned so much from, that... Uh, That tradition has so much to offer. It has particular teachings that are really important. To me, they're essential. They're essential to my spiritual life. I also think it's interesting to go to, if you have your own background, something in your background, like I have Catholicism in my background, I don't want to ditch it. I don't want to just get rid of it. I'm not a practicing member today in any way. But I realize that there are things that I learned as a Catholic monk and some way I was shaped that I value very highly, but I have to take it away. It doesn't belong to the institution. It's something that I can take for myself. And this now we're getting closer to a religion of own.
0: <laughs> Indeed we are. I really love that emphasis on focusing on tradition, which is really a, a time-tested thought and ancient wisdom but not necessarily institution. I think that distinction is really important because a lot of people do kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. They do reject the institutionalized religion and as a result really miss out on the truth and wisdom contained in these traditions. And that's what I found in reading your latest book, The Eloquence of Silence, which is really our topic for today. And we'll get into it very soon because you can tell that your own spirituality is a really beautiful collage. Right. In your book, you quote Jesus alongside Zen Master Ria Khan. You quote the Tao Te Ching alongside the Upanishads and Carl Jung. And is this how you feel that our modern spirituality kind of should be practiced?
1: Well, I would never say how it should be practiced. I, don't, I, I can't presume to, to say that. But I would say that from my experience, what I, what I find valuable, I can tell, People, what i find valuable is learning something something valuable but also really going into it don't just you don't know, have to dabble but you really go into a tradition and grasp what it's what its basic teachings are and make them part of your way of thinking then you can do that with with you know maybe a hundred different influences and that then gives you a very rich constant source you don't have to just rely on one here, or one teacher, and as you say, the tradition gives them a certain uh, gravitas or a certain value because they've been around and have been tested. So that's what I do: I read the Tao Te Ching almost every day, maybe every week, I should say, and I read Carl Jung every day, and I uh, also study and teach the Greek Greek polytheism, which to me is a great form of spirituality that I don't hear from the so-called spiritual teachers. And uh, I put a I put a lot of that together, and it's not a mix. It's not like people call it a cafeteria. Well, even if it is, I always say I like cafeterias. I love to be able to have all those choices of food. <laughs> so it's, I think it's not a bad image. But I know they're saying it in a deprecatory way, meaning that this is superficial, that you just taste a little of that and a little of that. I, I think it's okay to to take pieces from. Various sources. We do it all the time. We do the same with any books we read or any authors. Right now, I'm really fired up about Henry David Thoreau. So I've been reading his letters late at night, usually, and I've been just absorbing them. I've been highlighting them to the point now. I don't. I can't find any words that aren't highlighted. And it's just. I'm so. I'm so taken. But I'm not making him my. my the guide of my life, for sure. But I'm, I'm taking as much as I can from him. I don't want to do him superficially or turn him into a slogan. So I think we can, we can all take our lives seriously. That's the point. Take your life seriously. And if you do, you're going to want to feed on only the best you can find.
0: It's true. It's funny because I am rereading a commentary I have on the Bhagavad Gita. And, you know, I I read this particular one a number of years ago and highlighted certain passages because they were relevant in my life at the time. Now that I'm reading again, I'm highlighting the other passages (laughs) that didn't relate as much, but now suddenly resonate so much. Yeah. And it's true. Your work is focused a lot on what I'll call an integration of science and spirituality or psychology and spirituality. You are a practicing psychotherapist, or are you still working? Yes, I am. And you have sort of emphasized this sort of basic idea that psychology is incomplete without spirituality, or even this idea that any psychological problem, psyche meaning soul, has its root in a spiritual dilemma. And I was wondering if I could hear more about that.
1: I think we are, as people, we are both spiritual and psychological. We have soul and spirit in our makeup. And both things are are both directions. Soul tends to be down, downward into our daily life and into our emotions, our body and our relationships, our home, our family, our children. That's all the life of the soul. And then the spirit is transcending, which is a wonderful thing. We don't have to just be there in that that world of, that's right around us, we can imagine bigger worlds and we can imagine, you know, angels and div- divine figures and uh, infinity and uh, reaching higher levels of awareness. These are all wonderful and necessary as well, but they are, they are different, but they're not separate. They overlap constantly. And so uh, it's very hard sometimes to know, let's say with a spiritual issue, Let's say that uh, you are trying in your spirituality, you have a desire maybe to be a little, have find more solitude in your life, to be a little more solitary. A lot of people have found that, you know, that over the centuries. Emily Dickinson did that. Uh, Thoreau did that by going to his cabin in Walton Pond and um, so on. You just go go on and on. People went on to the desert, you know, things like that. And um, the question is then, Is this uh, looking for solitude, is that just a spiritual thing so that you can have time to be contemplative and think about the greater issues? Or is it something psychological where you need to be alone, or you need to get away from people for a while, or you can't think with all these people around you? And then how do you get solitude if you have a family, if you're a parent? How do you do that? Can Can you work that into your life? That's a psychological, psycho-spiritual issue in itself. These two come together. So I think that's fascinating, and that's where I have focused most of my attention in my life, the psyches, the psycho-spiritual matters that we have to deal with.
0: Yeah, there's such a huge overlap.
1: It is. It's, 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 and it's hard to sort out sometimes, and you don't have to. You know, just as long as you attend to it. I think we have to do is understand that the spiritual life really is important. Everything is not about relationship and about your childhood. Many, many issues <laughs> in your life are about how you find meaning and what are the really important values that you want to keep as the kind of the, the foundation of your life. What are your Ten Commandments? What are your, what are your guideposts for your life? And uh, those things are inextricable from your emotions and your past and your relationships.
0: I would love to go back to something you mentioned earlier along the lines of you really valued your time as a monk at a very young age. And although you wouldn't say you're a practicing Catholic nowadays, you didn't want to ditch it entirely, but use some of the lessons that you learned, and I am curious, what are some of those wisdom teachings and lessons that you learned during your studies, during your time in the monastery, that you feel have really carried you throughout the rest of your life?
1: Well, one of the things that comes to mind is that living monastic life, what really impressed me was living in a community under vows. We have vows of, these are solemn, very solemn ritualistic promises to live Poverty, chastity, and obedience. In my case, so poverty meant not owning things. We, you know, you decide okay, ownership is not going to be the big thing in your life, and you, we're not going to own things individually in this community. If you make any money, you put it in the common pot for everybody. If you, you know, if you're wearing it, I remember once wearing a T-shirt, and I realized that the guy in the room next to me really needed it more than me. And so I gave it to him. And I thought, this is the vow I'm living. That's what you're supposed to do. And that's the way we lived. And I found that uh, community life under those vows to be uh, very, very rich. I mean, I really didn't want to leave it. I liked it very much. But I came to a point in my life where I just felt that it was over for me. And I had to go into a bigger world. I'm glad I did that. But but it was hard because it was a wonderful life. So I guess what I'm saying is that I learned that um, that it's possible to be personally, individually fulfilled, living without any emphasis on ownership and property and without uh, requiring, without needing a sexual life in the usual sense. I felt that my erotic life was satisfied at community in the sense of all the love that was The concern for each other that was there it it made it easier to have this vow of chastity and obedience was tough, but it means basically it means for me now it means that I follow what I hear to be what I take to be the the voice guiding me in my life. I feel that I'm guided in my life. I'm not I'm not I'm not choosing my life. I'm guided. I always do. I I try to pay attention when there are signs that it's time to move in a certain direction. I'm aware of a guidance aspect to my life, and I live that way. And that's the vow of obedience. I obey. When Boy says, move on, I, I try my best to follow. <laughs> I've not always done it, but when I have in big matters, it's been very good.
0: What I'm almost hearing from you is there's a bit of a paradox going on. It's very easy to think that poverty, chastity, and, and obedience means having less or restricting oneself from certain enjoyment in life. But by actually letting go of these things, you find almost a greater level of fulfillment through poverty and by letting go, you realize you don't need these things and then are able to find true freedom. By practicing chastity, we find an erotic life with everything, not just with one person at one particular point of time. And even obedience is not like external restrictive rule, but a vow to follow your own truth, what is really your own heart.
1: That's right, exactly. So they're deeper. They're not, you know. People take them too superficially. These ideas, even if they think about them at all, they would take them too superficially. And I'm trying to say that they don't have to be. Nothing we do has to be so literal as we usually make it to be. We've got to see through it so that we can see to its depth and its uh, its less literal uh, meaning. And then you live at the level of spirit and soul.
0: Yeah, I really love you introducing this idea of soul. I know this is a really key part of your work. You kind of grew to grow to popularity with the care of the soul. But there's also another book you have on the dark night of the soul. And this is the Learned Love podcast. And I wanted to ask you about a quote from the dark night of the soul where you write, Love takes us beyond the human sphere. It puts you in touch with the ultimate object of desire. It invites you to transcend yourself, to be more than you ever have been. And I would love to hear more about this idea of love and particularly what it means on a soul level. When you
1: love someone or something or some place, let's say someone, your heart opens up and I don't think you really know what it is that, or who it is you love. You, you experience love and people in a, maybe too easily think that, well, it's this person that I love. I really think that our love is constantly moving, becoming more and more profound. And so you say you love someone and you really feel it. And as you spend time with that person, you may go through some difficult times because you're sorting out your yourself and your life and and, in the best circumstances, that love deepens then all the time, and I think you become someone then who's capable of love in a bigger way, so it keeps going that way the The person is not is certainly the certainly you love that person, no so question about that, but that person becomes the means by which you can increase your love all the time. you can make it as you were saying, make it a love for the world, for other people, maybe to be more socially engaged, be concerned about your, your environment. Uh, all of that is very, I think it's part of love. And, and then what, what the mystics say, and I love to read the mystics, the mystics of several different religions and traditions say that the ultimate object of love is divine or it's infinite. The people, I like to quote the passage from uh, the Song of Songs in the Old Testament, I sought him whom I love in my bed at night, and I didn't find him. I like that because yes, you're looking for that one you love in your bed, but you don't find him entirely. You don't find the object of your love entirely because it is always beyond. So that our love takes us beyond. That in that sense it's it's mystical. And if you really if you really follow through on this love, this kind of love it becomes a very essential ingredient in your spiritual life.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't mind following your answer up with another question along the lines of, there's some debate going on around the translation of mystic poetry, because there's a lot of people that come to the mystics, like a feast or Mirabai, or even you know Saint Teresa of Avila, and they're not the biggest fan of religious language, like the word seeing the word God in a poem, right? And um, so then a lot of times this is removed from the translation, and maybe not even mentioned in the in the commentary. And then the poems become much more about like an intimate romantic love. And people think the poems are about an intimate romantic love when the original intention behind it was the love of God and the infinite love of God to you. And where do you see the, those two things reconciled in terms of is the love for one another limited and we need to focus more on the divine or is it, a reflection, right, of the love of the divine that we find in other people. I
1: think the the ideal is to reach a point in your life where you can do both always at the same time. So no matter what it is you're doing, you can see further into it, and you you discover after a while that everything you do has a, a much deeper meaning. For example, I uh, I like to once in a while, rarely, but I like to play golf occasionally. I like games, and I'm not good at it at all. I mean, at all. But um, I've studied it a bit, and I can see that this game is that I enjoy playing is very meaningful to me. It's very meaningful because it is in play, in game, which is very close to ritual, if not the, the same. In play, and in, in the ritual of golf, I'm, I'm exploring what life is all about, really. I've been given this little ball. That's what I've given at the beginning, and I've got to get it 18 times into a little hole. <laughs> and I think that's what life is about. Really, we're given our we're given the life we have, our personality, our parents, our family, where we were born, all of that. This is what we're given, and now the point is to play out your life. I think play is play is really essential, more important than work, really. So. And many people have written wonderful books about the role of play in religion, rituals and religion as a kind of play. I mean, look at, I grew up in the Catholic church where the men put on these robes and, and uh, sprinkled water on people and got in line and walked around buildings in procession. And these, I mean, it's all play. It's all play. It's play, play acting. I was watching the um, coronation of uh, King Charles and, uh, I thought, the thought that occurred to me was how much play was going on. These big hats, these jeweled crowns, and looking funny, you know, like kids putting on a big hat. (laughs) And and then all the different colors and the the stepping in a certain way, walking in a certain way, processions. So I think that all of this is uh, like the game I play. If I'm playing golf, it could be some, some other game. Billiards, for example, have been described hundreds of years ago as the game of life play pool you are you're playing a game of life and you have what they called hazards you know on the on the table and if your ball goes into a hazard that's engulfed too there are hazards and those are hazards of life that you get stuck in and how you deal with them is important for who you are so that's that's part of, of uh, understanding all of this is to realize that that everything we do has a very profound dimension. In a way, everything is mystical. Everything is mystical. And if you have that in mind, then you can then, talking about love, you can see that there's a lot more going on than just a relationship between two people, although that's absolutely important. It's through working through that relationship that you encounter infinite matters.
0: So I'd love to get into your latest work, The Eloquence of Silence. So if I'm not mistaken, you're in your 80s right now.
1: I'm 82.
0: 82, yes. So you've written, you know, you've written an incredible body of work, and now you find yourself writing about silence, quietness, emptiness. So how did this come about? What inspired you to bring this piece of work to the world? I've been
1: thinking about emptiness for a long time. I I was I was in my 30s when I was introduced to Zen Buddhism, and uh, emptiness is uh, is one of uh, the key aspects of the Zen life. And uh, also, I find it elsewhere. It's in Christianity, where uh, Paul in the epistles uh, talks about Jesus emptying himself, and they call that kenosis. I think that there are many instances when you're called upon to empty yourself. As a parent, it happens all the time where, you know, you have your own intentions and your own desires and your children have needs and you empty yourself so that the kids can have a life and they can grow up. That happens constantly. I think that's one of the big parts of parenting. And also, we live in a world, as you said at the beginning here today, where we're we're full of information and we could use some emptying, I think. There's a passage in this book where I I sort of get express my own frustrations in saying that we we have too many words and we've heard too many sermons and too many political speeches and we have too many words and it would be great to find some silence and discover that silence can have a great power. Even though the, my book is about emptiness in general, uh, silence is a major way of being empty, and so I and I like. I like quiet and silent. So so in other words this uh, this book is not new. It's something I have been thinking about and I've been including in my writing for many years been in the very you know like embedding this idea into other books. At one point I realized that what I enjoy is that there are many traditional stories about emptiness that use very concrete images of something that is empty. An empty plate, an empty chair, an empty uh, pot, uh, an empty finger. Finger doesn't have anything on it. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to put together these stories? And in some cases, they are uh, reflective thoughts of, of certain authors that are about emptiness. And write my own commentary to guide people into seeing what I see in these stories and how they are valuable.
0: I love that. Yeah, I have this book on the Theravadan monk Ajahn Chah And the the picture on the front is an empty bench with a cane sitting next to it. The basic idea that we fully empty ourselves so that we experience the realm of non-self. And I wouldn't mind just getting a little bit into this term because I think it can be easily uh, get confused. Right? People conflate emptiness with empty which seems like a void that's just lacking in any character. So what does this term emptiness mean to you?
1: Well, I have studied these things. I don't pretend to be an expert in shunyata, what I call it in India, but I've read a lot about it. And the way I understand it is that emptiness as a spiritual principle means that you can be fired up about some idea or a leader, or a teacher, or a system, or a book, or a certain language, you can be really fired up about it. But you don't have to be attached to it. You don't have to give it too much. There should be, I think, with whenever we're really excited about certain things like that, to be able to be free to let them go at the same time. I'll give you an example. I was giving a lecture once at a interfaith Organization in uh, upstate New York, and I, I was talking about the soul to these people. Most of them Christian ministers, and but, but some Jewish rabbis and a couple imams, and and uh, there was a there was a Zen priest, a woman, sitting in the front row in her formal dress. And as I was talking, I kept noticing her there. And so at the break, I went up to her and I said, "You know this word, soul." Is useful to me, but it's not essential. And She bowed at me and she said, "I know it's empty." <laughs> and I thought that is the best, to, you know, description of this that I can remember. I think of is that I am really dedicated to this idea of soul, but at the same time, it has an empty quality to it. In that, am not, I haven't pinned my life to it. And if someone doesn't like that word, that's fine with me. We'll continue talking. I don't need it. So that kind of emptiness, I think, is really the most important kind, where everything you do is empty. That's why I included the Heart Sutra in uh, this book, because the Heart Sutra uses the word empty about, I don't know, 50 times in a very short passage. And this sutra is like a psalm or a hymn, and it is Sung, you can you can go to YouTube and 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 watch as uh, the Dalai Lama chants the Heart Sutra, and people write it out in calligraphy all over the world every day, and they're trying to say I have to empty my life, I have to restore this idea of emptiness every day because it's so easy to forget. There's no space between me and the thing that I'm so concerned about, and we need some space there so that we are free. We are not. imprisoned by whatever it is we, we love. And then when I say I say this in the book, the biggest challenge is to make sure that emptiness is empty. You could make emptiness your, your driving passion in life and have no space between you and it. So anything, everything you do, everything has to have, a, I think, a certain gap of emptiness in it that keeps it alive and free.
0: Absolutely. And what I'm hearing from you is just how this is, often contrary to what we're taught by culture and society, that we need to accumulate and gather as much as possible. And we do have to balance that tendency with creating space in our life, not being so attached to certain beliefs and assumptions we have about ourselves and others.
1: I would say that probably at least 50% of the emptiness in our lives, this good emptiness, is forced on us like it's life takes away you know we we lose things we lose our health we may lose a friend we may lose a parent you know the parent dies we can lose we can lose property lose a job and then in the everyday life we just lose our wallet or lose a credit card the greeks had a wonderful way of, of understanding this they had a god in their pantheon called hermes who was a thief He was the one who stole things. And the Greeks understood that when you lose things in your life, it's Hermes that takes them away. (laughs) It's a divine thing. There's something deeply meaningful when we lose. And that emptying of our lives, I think, is very, very important. You don't want to just constantly fill up. So the emptying is important. And if you look at it from the Greek mythological point of view, it's a thing that is done by one of the gods. The gods takes things from us. And it's not a it's not it's not only something that we do for ourselves that we we are emptied. And you therefore might go with that emptiness or with that loss, and not just take it as something terrible or try to fill it up, but rather hold the emptiness and live with it.
0: So the next time I lose something, I'm going to be like, ah, Hermes. (laughs) Absolutely, Absolutely. Hermes. So I want to read something from The Eloquence of Silence because I feel like it touches on on a lot of the themes we've already talked about because earlier you were talking about really welcoming in the mystery. And in this book, you write, eventually we may learn that life is essentially and positively mysterious, not to be explained and exploited, but absorbed into us we may ultimately discover that love is not an emotion, but the central dynamic of the world's welfare and existence. So I wanted to ask you more about that. What does it mean to view love or discover love as a central dynamic of the world's existence?
1: I go go back to the Greeks. The Greeks had a God whose name was Eros. And um, in in some of the Greeks, one of their religions called Orf, Orphic religion. In their mythology, Eros, or love, was uh, the creator of the world. And uh, it's not too far from the Christian idea that God is love. You know, it's, I think it's connected there. And But it was first understood cosmologically or, you know, that the world itself is held together. So people who came around later and said, well, love is what holds the planets in their orbit. This attraction not wanting to go away, stay close. The, there's the, That's the principle of love. It's physical, it's different with the planets. And we would prefer probably a more scientific explanation saying it's mag, magnetism or gravity. gravity yeah. But the Greeks could see that this is love. This is, This is a kind of love too. Just like two people who love each other don't want to be apart, the planets don't want to be apart. They want to keep close to each other on this particular trajectory they have, and I think that's a quite a wonderful way to look at everything going on in the natural world. That when you see uh, one thing wanting to be with another, you see the love. For example, right now I'm looking out my my windows of my my house, and I'm we live in the woods, and I, I'm seeing a, a large uh, group of trees in front of me. And you could say that they want to be together. They don't want they want to stay in their close-knit community there. They love each other. It takes a certain mind. Now, some people would say that's silly, and it's projection. I never use the word projection myself. You know, you could explain it away that way. But it is just as intelligent and meaningful to say, well, this looks like love to me. I understand that. The family wants to hold together too, they want to be in the same house. And when they're out traveling they, they get they hold they stay together, they don't want anyone to be lost. And you look and you see nature, wow that, that's happening here too from a certain point of view. So that gives a kind of sacredness to the world. And it's the the purely physical explanation makes the world mechanical, and we lose its soul that way. So I w- I think there's great wisdom. And I think the Greeks are far ahead of us, not behind us, in being able to see love in the natural world at work.
0: I love that. We lose the soul of the world when we describe it simply as a mechanical process. So as we're winding down, just a bit of time for a couple more questions. I want to see what this idea of emptiness has to do with our intimate relationships, or how it might serve our intimate relationships. So what place does that emptiness have in our relationships?
1: Well, I think it's essential. It's really essential. If you don't have the empty, uh, that gap of emptiness in your relationship, everything will be much too tight, too fused. My friend James Holmes used to, he and I lectured together a lot, and and he would give this lecture where he, he just, uh, Shouted out, he said, "Don't make your love fusion. Don't fuse. Don't do that. That is not love. That fusion is not love. Fusion means no gap. You know, there's no emptiness in it. We need the gaps. We need uh, the times apart. And and who knows how? You know, that's up to you. It's an art. How how much time do you need apart or want apart?" If uh, if any, maybe that's not the way you want to get your emptiness. It might be that you each have your own life work and your own group of colleagues and friends. That can give you a certain emptiness because there's a space between you and that part of your life and and the person you love and are with. So that space really helps. Being able to, um, to differentiate each other, really be able to see and to maybe disagree about things and realize that that's not a threat to your relationship. It's an advantage. It's bringing some emptiness to what would other be fused, to uh, to, to bound together. So in that sense, I think uh, that could, there are other ways, but I think that's probably the main way that relationships benefit from some emptiness.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of that famous Khalil Gibran quote that's often read at Weddings and different things like that, along the lines of let there be spaces in your togetherness
1: that's right same idea. I can't think of others. I think i I, I should i would I know there are other ways of of exa- of uh, imagining that. I think that love you know when the one interesting aspect of it is that this is something i've I've written a lot about is what happens when you have a partnership here with someone a I mean a relationship and a third person enters the picture, you know, some other person appears and one of the parties loves someone else or has a flirtation or an attraction to someone else. That's creating some emptiness, you know, a space. And that is intolerable to a lot of people who want to fuse. And uh, so I think that uh, that's another way in which emptiness appears. And very, very often when emptiness appears in life, it's painful. When you lose your parents, it's a pain, painful thing. When you, when a friend of yours dies uh, to a terrible illness, it's, ter- it's very painful. So emptiness is not fun. At the same time, it's, a, it's an essential part of life. And your job is to be with it in some way. So in relationships, I would say there's got to be some way, not a, necessarily a literal way but some way to find some distance. So if your partner is interested in someone else, maybe that's a sign, a signal that maybe you guys have been too tight. And There's got to be some way. Um, one of my friends has written about this. David Miller says that uh, a lot of times the third factor in a relationship is work. That work is the thing that creates an emptiness in people, in their relationship. And one person will say, oh, you spend too much time at your work or that you work too hard and you should be home more often or something. Well, that becomes an issue then. another. Often it's a third factor that comes in to create the empty space.
0: Oh, I love that so much. That feelings of emptiness are an essential part of life and our job is to be with it in some way. And I feel like a quick follow-up I want to hear from you is along the lines of when people do feel depressed, they will often use this term. I feel empty inside, my life is empty. Maybe they even see this world as empty and even devoid of meaning. And is this a conflation of two separate terms, or is there a connection there? And and do we want to treat depression the same way we do emptiness?
1: Well, it could be, uh, yeah. Sometimes I think it's true that feeling empty or having an emptiness in your life that you think is a problem, Looked at from another point of view, you see the the shunyata in it. You see the the spiritual emptiness in it. Uh, maybe not, you know, it may not be totally what that is, but there may be an element of the emptiness. That's how I I see it. That emptiness comes in as a factor or an element, but not always as some great literal whole It may be just a quality of what you're doing. There's emptiness as a quality and I really like that. I find it as a teacher that or as a therapist I really try to include a lot of emptiness in my practice. So in my practice and therapy I uh, I leave plenty of room when a lot of times when I'm tempted to say something I just keep my mouth shut. Ah. emptiness I remain empty and to see what will happen to let something happen. Uh, if I'm always talking and always explaining that would be terrible to let that unknowing exist for a while and uh and not not think I know and go in and explain it all that would be horrible so what I do as a therapist very very often i'm being empty i'm not i'm not uh, saying things I'm not trying to step in where i i may think i may be i may be able to fix something that's a terrible thought anyway but um but I, I do, That's I'm called on frequently to be quiet, to realize how important silence can be at, the, at a certain time.
0: Well, yeah, I feel like silence in your own mind is so crucial for listening, for being present with another person. And I love what you said, we can let the unknowing exist for a while. Ah, well, thank you so much, Thomas Moore, for coming on. And I do have to finish by asking the final question I ask all of my guests, which is, what do you wish everyone knew about
1: love? I I'd Probably the answer of the moment would be one of my basic uh, orientations toward life is to what the Tao Te Ching says, let things take their course or let things happen. And I think that if we could understand again what the Greeks understood, Eros, for them, love was a, a a young adolescent god, one of the gods. Eros was one of the gods and later became Cupid, shooting an arrow of love into people's hearts. Earlier, he was an adolescent figure, which makes him even more difficult. And I I like to see that because love can be so immature so often. And so I would say the important thing is to Imagine love as something that has come into your life for you to respond to and nurture and uh, fit into the rest of your life and what you want your life to be. Find a place for this love that has come and uh, realize that it has a lot of independence and autonomy. It can be destructive. It's not always good. Love can easily get be destructive. And Love has wings, so it can fly away, and that's not up to you. It's going to fly away. It will just do it, and don't blame anybody for it when it flies. Don't blame the other person when love is gone. It's, love is a is a spirit of some kind and with wings, and uh, so you respect love as independent in some ways, and you. But you do what you can to to welcome it and fit it into your life and adjust your life so that it can have its own life with you. It has a lot of gifts to offer. It will cause a lot of pain because it's full of vitality. And one of the most painful things in the world is to have more life. Uh, To have to fit one more new thing into your life can be very painful, can be very challenging. Love is like that. So I think you need a sense of its complexity, of its... uh, being both good and bad, if it's autonomy. And uh, if you do that, I think that you might have a better chance of being successful with it.
0: I love that. Love is something that has come into your life for you to respond and nurture. And it is really lovely to think, okay, love is a spirit. Just like a spirit, it has wings, it can fly away, it can come in and out of our life, and we can appreciate it, just as we do appreciate the birds as they fly into our awareness and then go on about their about their life. That's right
1: It's hard to keep a bird in
0: one place for a long time <laughs> <laughs> It's true you and that's yeah, you shouldn't, and that's you don't want to cage it either, no, that's right. Well, thank you so much, Thomas Moore. I'm just so honored to have been able to spend this hour with you, to have so many questions that have been percolating in my mind, being familiar with your work. And I encourage all of our listeners to check out your, your newest work, The Eloquence of Silence, and let, let that also be a gateway to your body of work that has helped us all get in touch with soul and spirit and love and emptiness.
1: Thank you, Zach. I appreciate it. Enjoy talking to you very much. Of course, it's easier when someone knows the work somewhat, and I, uh, I I felt very comfortable speaking with you about these things. And the questions you ask are not easy; they're the probing ones, and they don't have easy
0: answers. Well, that's the mystery. <laughs> But that's what I love about this work and your work is it's those big questions, right? How should we live? What is life? What is God? What is spirit? So thank you so much. There you have it, everyone. The amazing and incredible Thomas Moore. Thank you so much for listening to the show. We hope you remember many of the valuable lessons that Thomas shared with us today, including that study and reading are a form of prayer. Lexio Divina is not reading for information, but a kind of reading that is aimed at ultimate questions and issues. As people, we are both spiritual and psychological, both soul and spirit. You can respect, honor, and learn from traditions as they come from communities of thought over long periods of time, while not having to strictly obey limited and literal institutions. When you love someone or something or some place, your heart opens. Love is constantly moving, becoming more and more profound the more you love. We lose the soul of the world when we describe it in a mechanical way. We need emptiness in our lives and space in our relationships. Feelings of emptiness are an essential part of life. Your job is to be with them in some way. You can rest in mystery and not knowing. And always remember, love is something that can come into your life for you to respond to and nurture. But love is a spirit. It has wings. It can fly away. Appreciate its presence in your life, but don't try to trap it. As the saying goes, let it free. If it doesn't come back, perhaps it wasn't meant to be. The best way to connect with Thomas Moore is at his website, ThomasMooresoul.com, Soul, where you can find more information about him. And you can find almost all of his books wherever you get your books simply by searching Thomas Moore Soul or Thomas Moore Therapist or Thomas younging and Psychologist. These are how I tend to find his wonderful work. Thanks again for listening. If you want to learn more about me, you can go to zachbeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com.